Hello, it's your host, Kat Walsh, and you're listening to another episode of Trip On This. This podcast is for mature audiences and is not suitable for young children. Trip On This is intended for entertainment purposes only, and we do not condone the use of illegal substances. Enjoy the show. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Trip On This. It was such a pleasure connecting with Sergeant Jonathan Lubecki. Jonathan is a combat veteran who served in Iraq from 2005 to 2006. He served the United States Marine Corps from 1995 to 1999. And after the 9-11 tragedy, he was sent over to Iraq and assigned as a designated marksman on Overwatch on an Overwatch detail. After suffering from PTSD from early childhood and his time in Iraq, Jonathan found himself suffering from severe PTSD for years, including having five suicide attempts. It wasn't until he was enrolled in a clinical phase two trial at MAPS for MDMA-assisted therapy did his healing begin. Jonathan is now a governmental and veteran liaison to MAPS, which is one of the largest psychedelic research uh, organizations in the country, in the world, and he has he is going around working with them and talking about his story. You know, he says something incredibly telling on this episode, something I hadn't heard before. And what it is is that he attributed PTSD to a brain injury. Instead of thinking about PTSD as uh, something that you're doomed with for the rest of your life, he attributes it to something similar like when you break your leg, you get a cast. And for him, MDMA was that cast. He now does not suffer from PTSD and is really going around. His mission is to help spread the word and say, look, there is help. There is hope. There is something out there that can be effective. Of course, he says it's not necessarily for everyone, but based on the last clinical trial, the phase three trial came out, 67% of those that participated with the MDMA no longer could say that they had PTSD. That is a huge number. I can't wait for you all to hear this episode, hear it from his mouth directly, and just to hear this story. If you know anyone in your life that is suffering from PTSD, whether they're a veteran or work in law enforcement or really have suffered from any kind of PTSD, right? Any civilian out there, this episode is for them. Definitely feel free to share it out to them. There are so many incredibly invaluable nuggets in this episode few things before the episode begins. As always, if you're not following me on socials, please do so at tripontis underscore pod. Again, that's at tripontis underscore pod for Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok, and backslash tripontispod for Facebook. Again, if you are enjoying the show, please send it out to your friends, your family. It's so helpful for me to grow this podcast and get the word out. And again, for those who have donated Thank you so much. It is so helpful. Thank you all for helping me live this dream. I am so, so appreciative. And with that, please enjoy this next episode with Jonathan Lubecki. Sergeant Jonathan Lubecki, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to Trip On This. Thanks for having me on. So I know you are working with MAPS as a governmental and veteran liaison. You are talking to people about your story, talking to people about the healing impact of MDMA therapy. Why don't we start there? Let's start with your story. Who was Jonathan Lubecki pre-MDMA therapy and what ultimately led you to the trials? Well, that's an interesting question because it all depends how far back do we want to go. Um, how like far, how, as, long, as much as you feel is pertinent to the story, I feel 
take it as far back as you need. Well, one of the things is, you know, like most people who end up developing PTSD after a traumatic event, I actually had early childhood trauma and was abused as a child uh, by my mother. That was always in the background. And then as we were just discussing, first four years out of high school, you know, I was in the Marine Corps. I, I was stationed in Japan for a year, flew all over this wonderful world, which was actually really good. I can't overstate how much traveling and seeing other parts of the world has affected my my personal worldview. Mm-hmm. And I highly recommend it. More Americans need to say, leave America and go see what the rest of this planet looks like. I couldn't agree um, more. Yeah. So then, you know, I, I got out, I got married, had a kind of a normal life, had an office job doing logistics. And then the towers came down. I knew I was going back in. I looked at my options. So I did not go back into the Marine Corps in part because my job that I had as a loadmaster, I could go to New York or Texas and that was it. Mm -hmm. And I was at the time living uh, in North Carolina. So I ended up joining the North Carolina Army National Guard in an artillery unit with hopes of becoming a warrant officer pilot. Deployed to Iraq 0506, came home. My first wife left two weeks before I got back from Iraq. I had no idea until the plane landed. And I watched everyone in my unit go to somebody, a parent, a friend, something. And I walked out into the raid, activated my cell phone for the first time in a year, called, got no answer, found a ride home, empty house, dogs gone. Oh my so that's how I God, I have home. chills listening to that. I am so sorry that you had to just that alone. What is oh, I'm f- hugging you. <laughs> I'm hugging you in 2005 or 2006 when you got back. Like, wow. Sorry. Continue. Well, and, and yeah, that didn't help. And, you know, it, things might've been different and not as severe if, you know, I come back and things had been different. Sure. Now, one of the things is I lived in Sanford, North Carolina, which is right near Fort Bragg. So I would and and there's things that when you're in Iraq, keep you safe Mm -hmm. that are not normal once you come home. And so I'd fall asleep on the couch and I'd start having nightmares. Now, what made it a little more complicated was because I was close to Fort Bragg, Occasionally, the helicopters I heard were real helicopters flying overhead just from the base. Sometimes the impacts were actual artillery impacts, which is why it was a good thing I left that house. I I, I had constant nightmares and constant suicidal ideology. Like every day, I wanted to kill myself. And I either tried or came up with a plan to do so in the near future. And I, and that's how I lived for eight years, but within two months of coming back from Iraq, I I put a gun to my head and pulled the trigger and due to a manufacturing defect in the ammunition, when the, when they put the bullet together, somehow the machine didn't put gunpowder in it for some reason. And so divine intervention. And I've had five different attempts like that. Uh, in different forms. Um, I mean, I've slipped my wrists the whole nine yards. Jonathan. Wow. 
uh, truly, but I'm going to say that again, divine intervention five times. That's, yeah. um, and then of course we, we won't jump ahead yet to just the work you're doing now. It, it's, uh, feels like it's a, a greater plan for you to spread the word. And so that's how I was for eight years. And mm-hmm. after my last suicide attempt, which was on uh, November 4th of 2013, I was hospitalized for about 10 days after, in order for me to be released, they did a suicide prevention plan. Mm-hmm. And one of the questions the VA asked was, Hey, what can we do to help prevent this? I said, well, the first thing you can do is quit screwing with me. And they said, no, no, we're still going to do that. What else is on your list? <laughs> At least they're <laughs> so, honest. <laughs> uh, I wanted two things, really. I wanted to have all four of my doctors to sit down at a table with me so that we could talk about my treatment for all the different things, because I had pain management, psych, orthopedic surgery, and general, uh, like the general practice doctor. Yeah. And all four of them were prescribing all these medications for all these things. I was on 42 pills. Whoa. Yeah. You need a holistic look. You need them all talking together. What's the full, what's the whole, how do we treat the whole person, Jonathan, not piecemeal for each of the professions? Exactly. And that actually didn't happen. I only got two of the doctors to sit down, even though the director of the hospital told them they had to do it. And then the other thing I wanted was weekly therapy. Mm Mm-hmm. My the, the my psych actually did really well on, on making that happen. But fortunately, one of the times I went, something happened on the inpatient floor. And she, she comes up down, meets me and says, hey, I really can't. I, I can't meet with you today. There's this issue I have to take care of on the inpatient floor. Having been on the inpatient floor, totally understood. Mm-hmm. And, and she's like, you know, if, if you need medicine refill, I'll put that in. But you'll have to meet with my intern. I'm like, all right, I'll do that. Best decision of my life. Really? Because the intern had read my whole file. Probably one of the first doctors to actually read my entire like filing cabinet file Mm -hmm. because they're an intern and Mm -hmm. they slide this piece of paper across the desk and said, put that in your pocket. We're not supposed to tell you about it. And I'm like, okay, what's on this piece of paper? Like, is this girl trying to hit on me? Is this <laughs> phone number? I have yeah. no idea. And so this whole time, I don't even remember what we talked about in the meeting because like, I want to know what's on the paper. So I walk out of the VA, open it up. It says Google MDMA PTSD. And so I did. And I found out that MAPS was conducting a clinical trial um, in Charleston, which is where I lived. So called them up, said, Hey, my brains are scrambled. Think you guys can unscramble them. And they said, well, come on in. Let's see what we can do. And I was the 26th person in a 25 person study. Oh, wow. They took you when they were full. Well, and the reason they were able to is because two people had dropped out, Mm. not because, not because they had problems, but because they did one or two treatments and said, Hey, I'm good. I don't need a third one. So they dropped out of the study. Oh, that sounds um, promising. <laughs> so, so because of that, they were able to actually expand it and, and allow me in. But also knowing that that door closed behind me when guys that I served with and, and, and other veterans I, I know, as well as all the civilians who have PTSD, that does weigh on me. Mm-hmm. And that's part of what motivates me to do what I do now. But 
while I was in the hospital, there was no therapy. There was no nothing. It was, they did rounds every morning and they gave you a little cup with pills in it. So I spent my time trying to think of ways, things that could have been different to have helped prevent it. Mm -hmm. And one of the things was I was burning out in college because I, I was trying to do too many credit hours to, so that I would graduate before I ran out of benefits. Got it. I, I came up with the idea, fairly simple one, just give six months more benefits to people with cognitive impairment so that they can do the minimum full time and graduate without running out of benefits. Yeah. That seems very Actually, fair. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, honestly, like I did the whole cost thing and, and there's, and, and it would actually have saved some money mm -hmm. to, to actually do this. So two days after I got out of the hospital, I, and I was in college at the Citadel down in South Carolina, Senator Rand Paul came down to give a uh, greater issues speech. And since all of the cadets were in full dress, I wore my uniform as a retiree, mm -hmm. went up to give him this, this idea. And when I went to shake his hand, he saw the bandages on my wrist. I later found out he thought I, you know, I had burned myself working on a car, cut myself in the kitchen, something sure. like that. And he goes, Oh, Hey, what, what happened? I'm like, well, about 10 days ago, I, I slipped my wrists. He stopped what he was doing, went behind the curtain uh, with, Sergio Gore, his right, you know, comms right hand guy, man, and said, forget I'm a senator, I'm a doctor, I want to know what's going on right now. And we talked for about 20 minutes. Wow. And he gave me contact information for Sergio and all that and said, you know, if you ever feel that way again, call Sergio and that I will use the full weight of my office to fix whatever problem. Wow, good for him. And that's, a, that's an incredible, I love when I hear stories like that, when you can see the you know, when you get to see the real person behind who they, who they present, you the, know, yeah, like, the facade you see, exactly, see the exactly. On YouTube or, and, and all of that, I, I will say that's always been a want to me. And so after the, I completed the MDMA therapy and I was better and, and I found out he was going to be running for president. I, that's when I reached out to Sergio and I said, Hey, I totally get, I'm, I'm like the loony guy, guy who was in the loony bin, but if I can help on the campaign, let me know. And I started small helping out a little bit in South Carolina, ended up mm -hmm. being South Carolina veterans director and ultimately ended up as uh, his national veterans director for the, his presidential campaign. Wow. I did that in two years simply because I did the MDMA assisted therapy three times. That's incredible. Can we talk about that? The assisted therapy, yeah. you know, there's not a lot of people who, by the way, thank you for sharing that story. I think so many people are just to, it's such a beautiful way to one connect with you and also just to see the severity for somebody like yourself and just the countless thousands of people more that are probably dealing with um, so much pain. And I think that's the, the beautiful part of now talking about like, let's talk about what was that like for you? Can you take us through what was the clinical trial about? Did you have people around you? How did it feel? Take give as if we were there, take us through. So um, I will say one of the hardest parts uh, about the trial is you have to wean yourself off of all, all, all your medications. Mm -hmm. That would be and, hard. And they work with you, and this is done with, with, with medical professionals and psychiatrists and all of this. It's all very highly monitored. But and, and there's different times, amounts of time for different medications. It's, that's the science stuff I don't get into. Mm -hmm. um, 
And, and that's one of the harder things is, is going completely off everything. Yeah. I heard it's and also so, the hardest part to even get people in the trials to begin with, because basically people are asked to go off medications that are working well enough. You know, it's, it's kind of like the, the unknown of like, okay, wait, I'm going off of everything now. So, well, especially because that includes cannabis. Yeah. Um, and, and in a lot of, you know, medical cannabis for PTSD is, is legal and available in most states. That that's another one that's, that's difficult. You've got to go off everything mm-hmm. in part because, you know, there's certain ones like SSRIs, which can cause complications. Others like cannabis, it's a clinical trial. We're trying to limit variables. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think necessarily you would have to completely abstain from cannabis for 30 days once this becomes FDA approved and stuff. But like you wouldn't want to like wake and bake and then go do that. Right, either. right, right. Because you don't know <laughs> if you're feeling very calm from it and then you put it on top. Like, yeah, like you said, like it, it doesn't just show the efficacy of just the one compound that's trying to get FDA approved. Exactly. Yeah. And so, um, and, and you go in and you do three, uh, they're called integration sessions before you do an MDMA session. And those are just 90 minute non-drug. You don't take anything. Mm-hmm. It's just quite honestly, regular therapies type session. And, and part of it is, so they have a baseline and idea of, of your story and, mm-hmm. and, and your trauma. So they know kind of how, what's going to happen when you're under the influence yep. and what you're going to talk about. And then the day comes, you show up in the morning because it's a clinical trial. I had like a blood pressure cuff and a bunch of other sure. stuff that probably when this is like being done in the VA, not as a trial, but as a treatment may not happen, probably right. won't happen. Um, once everything's set up, they're like, okay, are you ready now? Were you nervous? The first, so, and yeah, I was, I was about to, to, <laughs> to say, so the first one and then the, the second and third were very different because yeah. the first one, one realized going into this, I didn't believe it would work. Um, I, I fully thought it would, fa- would fail because everything else had. Mm-hmm. Also, I'm 44. So I grew up their generation. Mm-hmm. Like if you do psychedelics, you're going to see dragons and jump out a window. Right. And knowing my history and stuff, I, I was worried that I would hurt the, the two therapists who were there mm-hmm. in the room. So they, I set it up where they actually had a phone number of a friend of mine. He's the guy who can quite literally and has talked to me off the bridge. So because I was, I was worried about quote, having a bad trip and, yeah. and they, they, thinking I was in Iraq and hurting them. Yeah. I, and then like I did it and I realized how stupid that is now, but it was. No, fear, but, I, but, but that's so legit. That is such a legitimate fear. If you've never done anything like that and you've heard stories from the past. I mean, that sounds very, very, um, I, I think a lot of people would probably default to that. I think it's important to share that actually. Well, it, it, especially because my drug experience up to that point was I had start. I, I first tried cannabis when I was 33 after three years after I came back from Iraq. It was the first time I smoked weed. That was my drug experience. That's it. Yeah. So, uh, and and so like, it would be easier if somebody say had done MDMA in high school or in college, they'd have a different frame of reference, but I had no frame of reference. Mm -hmm. So that fear was there. Yeah. And so they're like, are you ready? I'm like, 
Okay. <laughs> here we go. Trust and surrender right here. <laughs> and so they have a little dish with, with a little green pill. And it's so funny because, and I, I said this to him, I was like, I was kind of hoping there'd be a red pill and a blue pill. Totally. I was just thinking that. Active. Oh my God. That's so funny. I was like, shoot, was there a red pill? <laughs> green pill. Exactly. Uh, and, and, you know, have it be the double blind thing be, you know, you have an equal number of, of red that are placebo and active and an equal number of blue that are placebo and active. Yeah. And then they, they, they choose, but, um, <laughs> like, why not? We'll make our, like, just give your suggestions for the clinical trial. Be like, look, can we just bring a little matrix into this? <laughs> it would make yeah. it more fun. <laughs> I mean, would the, the, the Wachowski or however you pronounce their last name yeah. sisters ha- have an issue with it? I don't think so. No, um, I think they'd love it. They'd be like, yeah, no, yeah. We, we definitely, we wanted this type of thought. I, I talk about that all the time. I was like, we going to red pill us? Are we going to red pill today? I'm like, oh, I'm red pill all the way. Let's go. <laughs> but so the other funny thing is for whatever reason, I thought it was going to be instantaneous, which is stupid because it's a pill. But I was thinking like LSD, you put it on your tongue and it's instantaneous. And and I have now since learned it's not, it doesn't work that way. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so- like, well, okay, maybe it's like cannabis where it like takes a minute or two. I'm like, nope. And then I'm like 30 minutes in and I'm like, this totally sucks. <laughs> You're like, did you give me the placebo? Come on. I was here for the real deal. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, and then I hit about 40 minutes and it, and it kicked in all of a sudden. And I'm like, oh, oh, I totally get why people take this now. Mm-hmm. I, I, and, and it's funny. I'm like, I don't understand how people go to raves and dance on this. But I just want to stay here and be nice and warm. They they asked me to describe the feeling. And, and I said, it, it feels like I'm wearing a scuba suit, like pressure, but over every square inch of my body, you know, like a really warm water. Once I kind of like got the giggles out and like adjusted. To, to yeah. <laughs> um, you know, they started asking like the kindergarten questions. What's it like? And I, you know, what's the weather like, or, or, or what was the food like? And I just started talking and your body doesn't betray you. You don't have fight or flight. Mm-hmm. You can talk about everything. And while I went in it fully expecting to talk about Iraq over three episodes, I talked about Iraq. I talked about my upbringing. I talked about my relationships. I literally talked about every traumatic thing that had ever happened in my life. Oh yeah. It's like doing therapy while being hugged by everyone who loves you in a bathtub full of puppies. Looking <laughs> your face. That is an epic analogy. And as somebody who has done MDMA, yeah, that, that, uh, that sounds right. <laughs> that sounds pretty correct to me. And, yeah. And so there's two kind of, of, of outcomes. I mean, I will throw out there, this is in clinical trials. If this doesn't work for everyone. I mean, even, you know, our phase three trial, 67% of people no longer have PTSD. Some people still do have PTSD. Sure. Um, you know, most, uh, most of the people have reductions in symptoms, but you know, there's people out there that this won't work for. Um, and there are risks associated with it. There are counterindications. For example, mm-hmm. if you have severe heart issues. Got it. And, Raises and, your heart rate, right? Right. right. And yeah. there's a few other med- medical issues. Again, that's a science question and I'm not a science guy. Sure. Um, but there are some counterindications, but this does help, help you know, 67% it's huge. Of, the, uh, of the people. And, and, 
it did help me and it wasn't traumatic. Can I ask you, I would love to get in a little bit deeper about why you think it helps. Now, what about from this is from this is not even a scientific thing. This is from uh, Jonathan's perspective about this situation. You're now going in. You obviously know all the events that have happened to you and you've gone to versions of talk therapy. What about having that um, openness, maybe like a, a loving detachment from the actual traumatic experience, being able to talk about it? What about that do you think was so healing? Was it the release of energy of like not being able to go there? Like, I know that's probably a little bit more of an esoteric idea, but I, I believe sometimes energy gets stuck with when something very traumatic happens to us. Like, is it being able to just be in it or, you know, like, have you thought about what about it actually was the relief? First, I think there's two kind of general outcomes or, or ways this works for people. There are people who have what I like to call the aha moment. In any one of the three sessions, they have just this epiphany, aha type moment. Got it. They're good to go. Like you saw in the study that I was a participant in, you had some of the people have that and say, I'm good to go. I don't need this anymore and drop out of the study. And then you have what I call like the Drano model, which is, you know, if you have a clogged drain, you put in Drano and it, it, it opens it up a little bit. And then you put in a little more Drano, opens up a little more. Okay, yeah. And then you, you, you finally you know, get the whole thing cleared out by doing successive treatments. Yep. That was what I went had. But also I think some of that had to do with the fact that I had a lot of trauma in my life to go through and not just like I had a great life. And then I went to Iraq and yeah, yeah, yeah. happened. Layers. Um, but so part of it is actually allowing me to do therapy. I, I was always reluctant to do therapy because I had a therapist when I was a child who actually, instead of reporting as he should have, told my abuser. Oh my God. Are you kidding me? He told your mom? No. Yeah. Oh, I'm so sorry. So yeah, of course, you and have a natural distrust now for this type of- Plus, you know, the military, especially back 05, 06, and even more so in the 90s, you know, that, you know, severely, you know- discouraged seeking help for mental health. And, and fortunately that has changed now in the military where they do try to encourage it. So all of that meant I never really trusted the person who was sitting across the desk. Sure. I also think that doing it for eight hours, I can't tell you how many times I get almost comfortable enough to get, go somewhere. And it's always, well, that's all the time we have for today. We'll take it up there next week. And you never actually take it up there next week. Got it. Are you talking and, about before the before the eight-hour MDMA when you were talking about with the therapy? Correct. It was like an yeah, hour yeah, or two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Right. And, and so, no, no, not even that. I'm talking about just regular therapy when I was going to the VA. Right. Therapy. So that's why that didn't work. But being there for eight hours, if it takes me an hour and a half to get somewhere, there's time. Yeah. But also you know, the MD, how the MDMA actually works on the brain, you know, it suppresses your fight or flight response. It mm -hmm. increases the trust. It increases your sense of love with the people surrounding you. So I was one able to get over my own personal trust issues with therapists in general, but also people with PTSD have trust issues to begin with. Yeah. So all of that goes away. So that barrier to, to the therapy actually working goes away. 
Was that last being able? Sorry, I'm sorry to cut you off. I was going to say, it was that trust lasting? Were you after, do you feel like you have more, uh, you lean more with a trusting lens as opposed to previously? Not because of the MDMA, mm-hmm. but be, the, the lasting effect is because of, of the lack of trust with people who have PTSD. Since I don't have PTSD anymore, I don't have those trust issues. Gotcha, okay. And I wouldn't say I'm more trusting necessarily it's just different i i'm i'm more i'm more able to properly evaluate whether i should or should not trust someone gotcha <clears throat> yeah um whereas my default position was always don't trust anybody gotcha okay yeah that makes sense. that's a big um, difference though to have just more discernment around what feels uh like you should be a little bit more on guard or where you could feel like you could just be yourself and and be open to receive it, And so, for example, like my fight or flight response still exists. Mm -hmm. You know, I still have a fear response and all these things. And and we haven't even gotten into all the crazy things that have happened since I I went through MDMA therapy. Um, I've had two people die in my arms after I did CPR on them since my MDMA therapy. Uh, Yeah. What? uh, (laughs) Oh, my God. Jonathan, like, (laughs) how was that? Like, how are you? (laughs) I'm perfectly fine. I mean, I, I did therapy, just regular talk therapy afterwards Yeah. for, you know, like a month or two and, and I'm good to go. I didn't have to do MDMA therapy again. I didn't develop PTSD again. Although I will tell you, you know, I was terrified that I was going to go back to the way things were sure. and that like being re-traumatized was going to break whatever they fixed. And I just slide all the way back. And that didn't happen, but that was a genuine fear that I had. Sure. Um, but back to the original question of, of like, how did it fix it? You also don't have that fight or flight response. You don't have your body betraying you when you start digging deep, mm-hmm. which is so, so there's all these mechanisms that stop you from talking about things. And the MDMA pretty much breaks all those down. And so you can talk. And I was, I, I was in such a place where I, I felt that trust, that love, and all those barriers were gone. So there were things I talked about that I had never told anybody. Mm-hmm. And so just being able to say it and process it and look at it from different perspectives allowed me to reassess things. Yeah. I think that's the key, right? The, the, the ability to look at something from a different perspective, because when you are able to get taken back to uh, a moment in time or, or a situation, I think, and, and I'm not just from any, from any level, right. We've got, um, uh, I wouldn't say a story, but a certain reaction. It's a, it becomes very like knee jerk to, to when that comes up, there's a certain response that the body does and to be able to have the opportunity because it is an opportunity to not go into the programmed uh, fight or flight response, the, the same response, but to actually have that ability to look at that same situation and perhaps see it from a new light. I think that is going, that is, that's to me, sounds like that's the root of the healing is, oh, I can actually uh, rewrite the story a little bit. I could see it from a different perspective. And, and one of the things I consistently say, because, and, and this is something I, I see in the psychedelic movement and in psychedelic medicine is a lot of people think P 
people's brains are stuck in this Western medicine model Mm -hmm. for everything so much so that they think, Oh, I can just go eat a mushroom and I won't have PTSD or I can go do a pill of MDMA and not have PTSD. Those don't fix a whole lot on their own Mm -hmm. because what they do is put the mind, body, and spirit in the place it needs to be so that the therapy can actually occur and it can actually work. Without the therapy, you're just doing drugs. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's always, they always say like, I'm, I'm very big around like intentional use and, and whatever that is, right? Just right. having intention for, uh, I'm like, for everything in life, right? Like to not be mindless around anything. It's hard not to, but to have like conscious awareness and everything that we're doing, I think is the, is the key um, to everything. And you're, you're absolutely right that it's not just uh, taking, it's not the magic it's not the magic pill. It is that we got to do the work. It's that simple. Like we all, all of us have the to work do the is work. Scary. And, yeah. It, it, it's, I totally understand why, you know, a veteran or, or a, a domestic violence survivor or a rape victim or pick your trauma doesn't want to necessarily go back to that place. Yeah. And it's also really hard to do that sitting in a therapist's office in an uncomfortable chair, completely and fully sober. You can, and, and what psychedelics in general do, but MDMA in particular with PTSD is it allows you to go back to that place and still feel safe. Yeah. That God, like that's priceless. What a priceless exactly. feeling. Because and, then and so you can you, move that energy through, you know, coming back to that. This is much more like, um, probably more of like a spiritual concept, but just the the energetic, that emotional <laughs> stuff we hold around the event. Because the event's obviously not there anymore. It's uh, energy that we hold around that event. And yeah, to be able to um, move it, I think we got to move it, but you're right when it's something that's something as very traumatic has happened to you, that's frightening to be in it if you're just doing it on your own. Exactly. And, and this is where, you know, there, there's people who I think don't do the work because they're afraid of the work. Yeah. They like the idea of I'm going to go do this and it's going to fix me, but they're terrified of actually doing the work. Sure. I have, I have a question about just veterans now, John. I mean, this, this, yeah. your, your, your story is so compelling, you know, and, and just three times from somebody who had tried to commit suicide five times to now being able to say, I do not have PTSD, right? That's incredible. What, what is the, what is the obstacle? How do we get this to be more uh, accepted by the veterans? How do we get more people with PTSD um, across the board? But I know I'll speak, I'll, we'll talk, we'll talk veterans right now. How do we, get this adopted more? What do you think is the obstacle to it being adopted right now? Well, so there's a couple of things that's a very multi-layered question because you have the veteran getting veterans to accept it. And then you have what's the obstacles Mm -hmm. because right now, one of the obstacles is it's not FDA approved and, and the VA is the Bronx VA and Loma Linda VA will be starting uh, trials soon. I don't know the dates or anything like that, um, but everything's been approved. Mm-hmm. So those will be the first trials in, in, in a VA. So getting access, having enough therapists, sure. 
train because we need like 25,000 therapists that are trained in the United States just to handle part of the number of the millions who have PTSD Mm -hmm. in the United States. And that doesn't count globally. But you also have getting veterans to do MDMA assisted therapy is easy. Getting veterans to admit they have PTSD and need to do MDMA assisted therapy is very difficult. Got it. Which is, so it's kind of interesting in that the stigma associated with MDMA as a cool party drug makes veterans more willing to try it. Oh, really? That I'm so glad you said that. Cause one of my questions was like, perception like is it do you think it has to do with perception around the fact that it's like you know, it's one of the few places where this the, the the negative stigma associated with it is actually of benefit because i can't tell you how many veterans who who i know who have ptsd but don't either don't talk about it or won't admit it to themselves who will say oh ecstasy awesome i'll volunteer for that trial i'm like cool if you think you're doing it because you're going to pull the wool over somebody's eyes, if it gets you in the therapy chair to get the help you need, I'm okay with it. Right, right. Tell yourself whatever you need to, if you like, just want to feel like you're doing some ecstasy, like, <laughs> great. But, but also like once veterans, once people understand that, that PTSD is not a chronic lifelong mental illness that once acquired is your new normal, it can be healed in four months like a broken bone. And so I don't know very many people who, when they break their leg, say, no, no, it's okay. I'll just limp around with this for the rest of my life. No. You know what they do? They go to the hospital and they get a shot of morphine to to start with and then get it reset and do a bunch of therapy. PTSD is a mental injury, just like a physical injury. And because of that, it can be healed. And once people realize that this isn't a lifelong sentence, a lot of people are terrified of the diagnosis. They don't want this giant scarlet P on them, you know, as the stereotypical sad sack veteran with PTSD. And so they don't go get help. Plus you have things where while they encourage you to get mental health, if you have PTSD in the military, odds are you're going to be discharged and, you know, you're going to get transferred over to the VA who's going to try and help you, but they don't have all the approved. They don't have the best, like, it's not the VA's fault that they're only allowed to do what's approved. Right. So they're like, okay, and, even if I wanted to get help, then I'm basically taking away the opportunity from myself potentially to do other things. So it's obviously very, very gray. Right. And so you have people who, you know, they want to stay with their teams. They want to finish out their 20 years. Yeah. But look, but look at how many operators get out at 15 years, five years short of, of retirement. And they get either medically retired or they just say, I'm done, or they get in trouble and they get, you know, separate, forcefully separated. It's quite a few. Yeah. You know, you, you brought up a really interesting point. And I think that is PTSD is just an injury. Like I love the analogy of the broken leg because uh, I don't think that is thought of, you know, I think, I think there is that that uh, perception that like, once you have PTSD, like that's it. Lifelong sentence. Like you said, like, and the idea that basically there's something not for everybody, but they're like a like an MDMA therapy that could be your cast, essentially, for uh, healing that that aspect 
That's such a that's such an important point to bring up. And I think a lot of people don't realize that that like, yeah, like here you are. You're like, yeah, I healed my quote unquote broken leg. And here I am getting to do I'm, I'm working with maps now and I'm a governmental liaison and, and doing all this cool stuff. So a really excellent point there. Then and realize if it's an injury, it could be healed. There's and if you think about it going into the future, I once a lot of the research that's going to be done later not just with MDMA, but, but all these other compounds, mm-hmm. we're, we're going to find out that most mental illness that is acquired can be healed. And, and I mean, there are mental illnesses like schizophrenia or bipolar that have a genetic component that we don't fully understand yet. But a lot of what we classify as mental illness is actually acquired through living life. So if we view all of those as injuries rather than how we currently view mental illness as they're just crazy. Yeah. It's identifying yourself, right? An injury, you don't identify yourself with an injury, right? You, but you do identify yourself with an illness, right? I have this, right? I have depression. I have bipolar, but I don't say I, you know, I have a broken leg. Doesn't mean anybody's thinking they go, Oh, okay. And then your leg gets fixed, right? It, there's but one's an identity and why. Yeah. I have cancer, yeah. for example, things like that. But yeah, you might say I have a broken leg for the six weeks you're in a cast. Exactly. Right. <laughs> exactly. And it might be part of your identity while it's healing. Yeah. But, but once it's healed, like, how many people who broke their leg in college who are in their forties go around and say, yeah, I have a broken leg. <laughs> right. Probably not a lot <laughs> unless it's still broken. So. <laughs> and, and so part of this is erasing that stigma and, and when people can start to realize and actually view these acquired mental illnesses, or at the very least PTSD, because the science and the data is there as a mental injury, just like a physical injury, it should be treated as such. God, that's brilliant. That is so one important. It's like, I can already see it's my marketing clip. Such a, such a, a, an important point that you bring up there. So I have a question for you now, obviously Jonathan pre MDMA therapy. I'm sure there is not a version in the world that you thought you would be doing what you're doing now. You're a liaison for governmental and veteran affairs talking about psychedelics and MDMA therapy to a lot of people right now. How has that transition been for you as just the man who is out of his, his life has gone into a different total direction now. But it also kind of didn't okay. in, a, in a strange way. I always loved politics. I was always involved in politics. Mm-hmm. Um, prior to deploying to Iraq, I actually ran for, for North Carolina Senate in 2002. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I, I ran as a libertarian and, and got my ass kicked, but still. <laughs> hey, um, you ran. I got twice as many votes as anybody thought I did. I, I participated in the debates, et cetera. So, and then even while I had PTSD in 2009, um, I got fired from a job because I went to the VA instead of killing myself. And then I was denied unemployment. So it, I, I eventually got unemployment, but I had to appeal it because they didn't allow the frontline decision maker to say, oh, he went to the VA, it's service connected, it's okay. So it was a glitch in the law. Got it. I saw it. And I, I, after my appeal hearing, which is where I found out about the law, I went home and I wrote my first bill. Three months later, it was signed into law by the governor of North Carolina. 
Um, and everybody's like, you should really do this like professionally. And I wanted to, but I also knew I really couldn't. I can't go to a big campaign rally if I'm going to have panic attacks every five seconds. Sure. And, you know, I can't go door knocking if I don't trust people and yeah. like, I think they're a threat. And so I, I just, I, I couldn't do the things I needed to do to get involved in politics. So this is where wanting to be involved in politics has always been there, but PTSD pre- prevented it. And then, as I said, you know, after I went through the therapy, I'm like, Hey, I can do really good stuff. That's when I reached out to, to Rand Paul. That's when I started working on campaigns and all these other things, mm-hmm. talking to politicians, telling my story. And also, and, and when I worked on campaigns, typically I'd work on like, depending on what it was, like the higher up the campaign, the level, the less in charge I was, but you know, I, I'd focus on like veterans issues and that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Ran some, as some campaigns as campaign manager and stuff like that. I just kept talking to everyone about it. And so maps approached me and said, Hey, you have, some, you know, you're a political operative. We'd like to contract with you to, to help us with some political strategy, which I've been doing for about three years now. Okay. Um, I actually had, I actually have my own contracting firm uh, or consulting firm. Um, and I do consulting with actually other psychedelic nonprofits as well mm-hmm. um, and help them out as best I can. That is, that's what I think is so beautiful about that too. Like coming back to what a gift, right? This, uh, what a gift for you. What an easy thing for you to talk about, uh, that just talking about MDMA and how it worked because here was something that was actually part of your dream that actually was blocking you from your dream that actually became now the road, the thing itself, it, it became the road to not only be able to live out your dream, to help influence policy, to work in politics, to work with, you know, governmental affairs and ultimately help people, right? That's why you go into politics is ultimately to uh, hopefully help the collective, right? And then also right. to to talk about something so passionately about here's the thing that is making this possible for me. This is, this is this how I feel about my podcast too, is I needed I needed psychedelics to show me that I was um, good enough to do this, that I, that I, uh, I had to break down all the stuff inside myself. And so it becomes so much easier to say, like, to point to something and say, like, look, look at me as walking proof. And now I'm here, like living my dream. And without that, I would not be here. What a beautiful story. Thank you. Well, and, and one of the things I'll tell you is that, that I didn't expect is I, I, I kind of hoped and expected to be involved in politics. I didn't expect it to be in, on the topic of psychedelics. Right. Um, <laughs> and here we are. And, <laughs> exactly. I'm um, just kidding. But, but it, it, it's also interesting because psychedelics so far has stayed above the fray on the culture war and has been bipartisan, mm-hmm. um, which is, has been a good thing, but also tricky at times, but also there's some very unlikely people who have come out very publicly <laughs> to, to endorse, you know, at least research and, and following the research where it goes. And if it helps people, they, then, then yes, they should absolutely have access to it. And, and one of those actually is, is believe it or not, uh, Congressman Dan Crenshaw of Houston, Texas, mm-hmm. uh, former Navy SEAL injured in line of duty, 
he actually just yesterday put in uh, a, an amendment to the National Defense Authorization Act that would require the Department of Defense to conduct uh, phase two or phase three trials on MDMA, psilocybin, ibogaine, and or 5-MeO-DMT. Wow. In Texas? In the Department of Defense. Oh, in the Department using, of Defense. Yeah. So wow. taking active duty soldiers who have PTSD and doing, for example, MDMA therapy or psilocybin therapy or ibogaine therapy and, and then do a fit for duty physical. And if they don't have PTSD anymore, they get to continue to serve. Unbelievable. That is huge news. That is huge news. I love that. I love that they're looking at different compounds too, because they all do, they're all different. They all serve a different purpose. You know, obviously I'm just going to pull out Ibogaine really quick because, you know, we, Ibogaine is really about addiction and we know that obviously addiction, alcohol addiction and a variety of different addictions are all related and how that has been like very exciting stuff. It also helps with TBI. Yeah. Yeah, Oh, does it? it? Yeah, it does. And and it's kind of funny how I, I, I don't think, Dan Crenshaw would be mad if I, I can sit, if I said he's an exceptionally conservative, you know, Republican, mm-hmm. not exactly the, you know, when AOC comes out and puts out an amendment. Sure. It's not that shocking. <laughs> yeah. It's like, Oh, it's Wednesday, huh? Um, you know, <laughs> yeah. It, it, and so, but D- Dan Crenshaw is kind of a different story. Mm-hmm. And, and part of how that happened was he went and talked to a friend of his who was a Marine who went down to, I believe, Mexico or South America, one of the places, and did Ibogaine. And it helped his TBI immensely. And he wanted to tell his friend, Dan Crenshaw, about it. Mm-hmm. Well, so after that, he, he came back to his place in Washington, D.C., got on the elevator <laughs> with this lunatic who had gone through the phase two MDMA trial, who, who, who kind of gave his elevator pitch in the elevator. Because Dan Crenshaw actually lives in my building. He's my neighbor. Oh, really? Yeah. So that 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 was, yeah. I, and so he heard it from you too. He just got back from hearing about Ibogaine. And now you're talking about MDMA and how it's just been straight up life-changing. Oh, yeah. And and like I whip out the scar on my wrist and all this. And I'm like, this, this you don't understand how amazing this is. And that led to, you know, talking with his office, his legislative director and stuff. And, and now he actually just put in a bill to require DOD to do something. That is so thrilling. What wonderful news to share. Thank you. You know, it really, it's, it's so wonderful to see on both sides of the aisle that we're coming to the place of just ultimately like, this is about healing people. Let's now move the, the, the war on drugs as a thing of the past now, and let's come together. If there's one topic that both sides can come together on, I would hope is mental well-being in a mental health crisis for all different sorts of injuries, as you say, mental injuries that can be fixed. We're not doomed. What a, again, what a great message that is. And to just to hear, like you said, somebody who is a very conservative person now talking about four of the most powerful uh, psychedelic substances between 5-MeO-DMT and Ibogaine. Those two alone, I would say, are like the most, that is the most psychedelic experience you can have, at least from my, from what I know. And to, to know that um, the old stigma and stereotypes and perceptions that we're going, that we're, that we're following the science and we're saying, actually, it looks like this can really help people. Time to put old stories behind us and look into this. 
Well, and, and here's another kind of interesting illustration of the shift in, in the politics surrounding this, especially uh, on, you know, the left versus right is so, so recently uh, Representative uh, Ocasio-Cortez put in an amendment to remove Section 507 from the Labor H bill to make it easier to do research and it would allow taxpayer funding of people advancing legalization of schedule one. Two years ago, the, the Republican response was drugs are bad. Okay. okay. Is that a South Park reference right there? It, it, it is. <laughs> That's hilarious. Um, and this, this year was different. This year, the Republican response, uh, Jack Bergman gave it was no psychedelic, for mental health is a very good thing. We need to conduct more research. Taxpayers should fully fund it. That's why we put report language in that ought, that directs the NIH to do exactly that. The issue is your amendment just isn't needed. So the argument wasn't over, should we do psychedelic research as a country or should the taxpayers fund it? That was, everyone agreed on that. The question was, was her amendment necessary to do that or was the current language that was already in the bill sufficient? Oh, got it. So, it's, so, yeah. so, so that's a very different argument over than should we do it? It's no, we should. What's the process? What's the the technical stuff? Hundred percent. And and that's a pretty big shift if you think about it. It's a huge shift. It's an exciting shift. I mean, it couldn't be more timely. You know, I've said this on other episodes, it couldn't be more timely with the state of the world right now, everything going on. Like, it's just nice to see that we are open and willing to give it a shot and just see, because what else do we have to lose, right? How many more lives do we need to lose to be like, wait, there's actually potentially something we can do. All it's going to take is you know, I always said at, at, at a very high level, ego is going to be a big one because if you've been someone who's, you know, been very outwardly at war on drugs and against it and this and that, like, yeah, you're going to have to probably square a little bit and say like, look, that's what I thought based on the information I was told at this time, that seemed right. You know, we were just basing it off and we heard that, you know, drugs and psychedelics make you do crazy things, period, the end, moving on, Right. And now just to say like, look, new science, new evidence is showing a different thing. And to just be able to say like, look, I thought that would at one point based on that information. And now that I see this, um, I'm now, I now reserve the right to change my mind about something that I'm now better understanding called these amazing compounds. And I think that's the place that hopefully we all get to is just that place of being like, yeah, look, if I was against it before, that's because I didn't realize about how much amazing stuff that it's doing. And, and well, I, and yeah, this is, this is where one of the things I would say is I like cannabis is really interesting in that there are people who know it has medicinal benefit. They don't care. They still think it should be banned. It's this weird tick in their brain when it comes to psychedelics and psychedelic medicine. It's, it's very different. It, it's, it's exactly what you're talking about. And, you know, I understand politicians. They're not, ex they can't be experts on every single subject. And so on a lot of things, they just assume the status quo Yeah. until they get new information that makes them change. I'd actually rather somebody say, okay, for right now, let's go with status quo. Let's learn about this and figure out how to change it rather than saying, I don't like the status quo. We need change for changes sake. Cause when the government gets involved in change for changes sake, typically yeah. ends poorly. Yeah. 
As the libertarian um, says, yes, I. <laughs> well, and, and so honestly, the, the biggest, you know, end quote enemy mm-hmm. is just education. We need to educate. The more I haven't, I haven't talked to a single person and told them my story who has said, no, these should still be illegal. Nobody should be allowed to have it as medicine. Yep. Not a single person. How could they? And, it would be like silly. Like that would just be, it'd be like, you obviously didn't hear what I just said to you. <laughs> Did you hear my before and, and, and after of my story here? And, you know, when the last administration w- was in charge, yeah, I talked to some very strange people and they're like, no, like, for example, Steve Bannon, actually, he's like, if it helps PTSD, I'm totally in favor. I, I, I talked to a, a two-star, retired two-star general and and we were having drinks and I was telling him about it. And his response was, look, I don't care if you give my guys black tar heroin three times if it makes them stop offing themselves. Right. I mean, honestly, though, like, isn't it that what's that's what it comes down to? Like, OK, it's, it's time for us to, like, remove um this is where like this, like the whole idea of like good and bad. And like, I deem this, it's like a judgment on our part, you know, and we all do, we're all guilty of this, but like we would all do ourselves a little better of a favor to just release our own judgment and say like, but is it working? Is it helping? Well, <laughs> well and the, exactly. And this is where, where I, I, in part of the, the, the reluctance by some people is, you know, we are facing an opiate epidemic and, and there's big fears about that and they don't understand how like ibogaine can help that and so on and so forth but because of that they're reluctant to like talk anything about any yeah yeah liberalization cautious around it and and i can understand that to to an extent but also all those same people i look at them and i'm like going back to the broken leg i'm like so if you break your leg and you go to the er and the doc or actually let's be honest the nurse gives you a morphine push is that an appropriate use? And they're like, well, yeah, I'm like, and you view that as, as being very different than say someone shooting up in an alley somewhere. Well, absolutely. I'm like, this is the same thing. Sitting in a room doing in-depth therapy for eight hours under the soup, direct supervision of two specially trained therapists is very different than taking MDMA and going to Def Leppard. Mm-hmm. I mean, personally, yeah, I'm probably, I, I would, Never mind. <laughs> I'm not even gonna. I'm not even gonna comment on that. Um, but you're right. But you know what's interesting though? I want to actually. Somebody shooting up in an alley, right? Versus the morphine. The thing is, if you want to kind of pull it back a little bit, the injury, mental injury, the person in the alley probably has oh, I, is I, probably I just yeah. as real. You know what I mean? That there is a there is an injury there probably a lot of trauma if you're in an alley shooting up. Therefore, while it's not making it necessarily better, it's an injury that they're treating. And unfortunately, it's, it's not, they've, got, they've taken a different road, whether it was, you know, through whatever variety oh, of circumstances. And, and, I don't disagree, and I don't disagree in, in any way. And part of this is getting them to understand these medica- these, these things as, as potential medication. Yeah. So them seeing that difference in there using what's so, so a lot of what I do honestly is going and meeting people where they are instead of where I wish they were. Sure. Do I wish that every, that every politician on Capitol Hill, Democrat or Republican understood that the guy shooting up in the alley is suffering from trauma and self-medicating. 
I do, but I also understand that's not the, the case, mm-hmm. you know, and it's interesting because one of the number one questions that I get asked, the very first question, almost every time when I talk about MDMA assisted therapy is, well, what about addiction? Not can this be used to treat addiction, but doesn't this, if you do this, won't you be immediately addicted and then just taking MDMA all the time? And I'm like, I've taken, and this is the truth. I've taken MDMA three times in my life as part of the clinical trial five years ago. Wow. Yeah. I haven't taken, I haven't taken MDMA since I've done ayahuasca twice as part of a Supreme court approved religious ceremony. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've done mushrooms in DC where they are decriminalized a couple of times. That's my psychedelic experience. So everyone, it's kind of funny when I talk about this, people start talking to me about LSD and I'm like, I've never done LSD. And everyone's like, oh, wait, what? I'm like, <laughs> you're like, it just also, hasn't, the opportunity hasn't presented itself. And technically, if you want to be by the book, there's not exactly a place in uh, anywhere. I don't think that you could take LSD or like mushrooms, decriminalized. Actually, no, in California, we were getting close to legalizing, uh, legalizing all psychedelics actually it's been pushed but it's getting there it's getting there so my last question for you i think is just if you could speak to veterans right now you know let's let's imagine a world where these therapies are going to become more and more available where even their demand right them talking to the vas them talking to them saying like i want this like can you make this available right because we need veterans uh to speak up also right and say like i want the opportunity to do this like can you guys do this what would you say to all the veterans right now about what this about what mdma could potentially mean for them i mean the easiest way to explain it is the fact that mdma assisted therapy is is the reason that my son has a father instead of a folded flag wow wow yeah and, and part of the reason I, I actually never turned down a media interview is because this is coming. This is happening. People who have hope don't commit suicide. The reason that every time I tried to end my life, it was because I had no hope of anything different than what was going on. There was no way to make anything stop. Veterans, we go live at, in, in a combat zone for a couple of years. We're willing to go through hell and back if we know there's a light at the end of the tunnel. This is the light at the end of the tunnel. And everyone, not just veterans, but everyone suffering with PTSD is far stronger than they think they are simply because they still exist. They've pushed forward when they've lost hope and everything else. And and this is a light at the end of the tunnel that's worth sticking around on this planet for no matter how bad things get for just a little bit longer. And I really hate as the guy who went through it to say, you've got to wait longer. And if I could give it to everybody who needs it right this second, I absolutely would. But honestly, one of the biggest things that will limit access is having enough trained therapists. And this is where Representative Crenshaw's bill with the DOD, if they're going to be doing these pilot programs, they're going to be training therapists. Because one of the issues that you'll run into, at least with DOD and potentially with the VA, the therapists are going to have to have the same clearance as the patient, especially if the trauma involved involves classified material or a classified mission. You know, you are putting somebody in into an influenced state. So keeping things classified 
in the normal methodologies that they use for, for VA mental health are going to have to be reevaluated. But we need to train thousands of therapists. And the hope is that we can get the VA and DOD to train therapists right now yeah. so that when this is approved in late 2023-ish, there's they, it can be turned on like a light switch and they can say, okay, this is the VA you need to go to to get this or, or what have you. Do you know if they are? Do you know if there are well, plans? I know, I mean, I see a lot of things like become a psychedelic therapist and this and that, but do you know if there are plans yet for so the, the VA? civilian side? So, so on the civilian side, um, MAPS is currently, we've got, a, a, we had a cohort that started a week ago, two weeks ago, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're going to have on the civilian side, I think a couple thousand of therapists trained before it's approved. And part of this is it takes like a year to train a therapist. I was going to say a couple thousand is not that much. It's not that many. Well, I mean, it's good. It's a good start. But I'm like, if we think about the (laughs) the entirety. Well, part of it is your quote unquote final exam is to actually do MDMA assisted therapy on a patient Mm. while being like graded by, by somebody else. I see. So that in and of itself is takes four months. Wow. Yeah. And so this is also where we're, we're, there's other modalities that they're looking at, like group therapy and potentially like doing two versus three sessions to help one, reduce the cost. Yeah. Um, Because in in the cost in in this therapy actually is not the medication. The cost is the 80 plus hours of therapy. Sure. Eight hours a day for a, for a, a session. That's a lot of, yeah. that's a lot of time. So it, the the therapist training, and you asked about VA and DOD. DOD hasn't touched this. VA has two trials that they're starting, and and they're looking at it. But the question is, are they going to start training therapists before or after FDA approval? Mm. My hope is to start doing it before, so that you know, if you know this is coming, and you know there's this training thing, start training now. Right. Right. Um, and it just feels and, like it's going to happen. It doesn't feel like, I mean, is it? I mean, this feels like pretty good. I'm a, I come from a betting family. I'm like, yeah, it feels pretty good that this is happening, that it's a good, feels safe to start, start getting those, start getting the veterans help now, which means start training the therapists now. The quicker well, that the, the, starts, then. The, there's, there's another advantage. If they start training therapists now, remember the final exam is doing therapy on a patient. So that means while they're training therapists, they're also treating patients. Right. So, so let's say DOD decided to do a trial with 50, 50 soldiers. They could train a hundred therapists with 50 soldiers. So you, you heal 50 soldiers and you have a hundred therapists trained. That would be incredible. That would and be- that could, that could be done before approval with all the right sign-offs from all the right people, obviously. Right, 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 right. Wow, but it, it feels exciting and it feels like, you know, there there's a, a map. Like, even though it hasn't happened yet, just like you said, like, yeah, but all we need is like this, like 50 soldiers, two people getting trained, they're getting the help. They're, it's we're, we're tackling two birds with one stone, right? Like, or, and, and to the more that we can envision that kind of like that very tangible, like, no, this is how it would work. And all you need to do here is sign on the dotted line. 
the more clear we can all keep making it and like yourself and you working with maps and saying like, here's the plan. Here's exactly how we need it. We just need you to say yes. We need you to say yes. Like the, just that's, that is getting us closer. Every conversation like that is getting us closer. Well, and, and one of the other things to consider is if, if DOD and the VA do this and they adopt it, the insurance companies are going to have a real hard time not accepting it and covering it as well, which leads to even more access. Right. 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 God, what a, what an exciting time. Thank you so much for sharing this story. You know, I've been really wanting to speak with a veteran, someone who's actually gone through this therapy, this, this session to actually talk about it, to really show the validity of it, to see, you now out here like living your your dream prior just so cool thank you so much for coming on here and sharing your story is there any place that people can uh, keep track of what you're up to are you on socials how can uh, I- yeah I, <laughs> so i'm it's at john lubecki um on twitter i do post on twitter um, i'm also on instagram sergeant psychedelic john, or jonathan lubecki you should be able to find me and you know, you can always reach out to me at, at either MAPS or any of the other organizations that I work with. I, I've got like five different email addresses now. It's crazy, um, which is why I had an issue because one of those email addresses, won't, Microsoft again, won't let me load it on my phone because they want 57 oh, God, yeah. factor up that. So, I, so in order to respond to your emails, I had to actually have my laptop open. So I saw that it was a different email. I was like, oh, he's, yeah. he's emailing me from his MAPS email. Okay. <laughs> it's official now <laughs> but no and and participants more and more participants are starting to to come out and talk about it and feeling comfortable about it um i'm actually working with some of the some other participants from the johns hopkins trial cool. in, in part to create psychedelic centers of excellence at uh teaching hospitals or you know universities mm-hmm. That are, that are co-located with VA hospitals, which is pretty much all of them, mm-hmm. to start teaching this as part of curriculum for upcoming doctors and all these things, as well as they could do research and other things. So huge. And, and, and so participants getting together from all these different modalities and, and having a voice is also a, a really good thing that's starting to develop. I love that. I love it. Thank you so much again for being here. I truly appreciate your time. Not a problem. Thanks for having me on. Awesome. And for everyone, as always, trip on this. <laughs>